But our New Testament reading this week is in John chapter 6. We'll start at verse 52. John 6, 52. As you're turning there, where we left off, it's important. Jesus in the middle of talking to the crowds, to these disciples and those who are following him. And he's just made the claim that I'm the bread of life. And in 51, as we're ready for 52, just to set the context, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And our sermon text for today is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Todd, music team, and for your focus in the music on the return of Christ, because that is... Peter's focus in chapter 3 of his second letter. So uh, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture and uh, look forward to to walking through it with you in the weeks to come. Uh, Next week's Palm Sunday and then next week Easter, so we'll take a break from 2 Peter, uh, but we'll, we'll come back to it. Great chapter. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask you just to wash us in your word today. 
refresh us with its living water. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us and hearts to embrace with gladness the sanctifying truth of your precious word. Thank you for the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus, who died, is risen, and is coming again. In his name we pray. Amen. All righty, so we move today into the last chapter of Peter's last letter. Let's just get a quick review of the letter to see where we've been. If you remember, uh, Peter opened the letter with a prayer for his readers' growth in grace and peace through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. He then reminds them of this beautiful truth in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, you have everything you need to live the Christian life. You are not lacking. You do not need a second work of grace. You do not need some uh, baptism in the Spirit that caused you to fall down on the floor or anything like that. You have everything you need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That's the key, knowing Him, knowing Him. Sometimes our Christian life seems wimpy because our knowledge of Jesus is shallow. So this understanding of our completeness in Christ comes connected to our ever-increasing knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of of God's divine nature through this gift of salvation, resulting in our escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What a great two verses to get into our bloodstream. I encourage you to keep going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. After that, Peter exhorts his readers to be fruitful by adding to their faith seven virtues. And we looked at these. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He encourages them that practicing these qualities will help them in their assurance of their salvation. By demonstrating these qualities consistently and in a growing manner, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, it will bring assurance. It will make our calling and election sure. So Peter urges his readers and us to confirm, to make sure our calling and election. And basically he's saying we do that by how we live. Our life is our assurance. Our life confirms our assurance, which rests in the finished work of Jesus. Peter then touches our hearts by telling them, showing his his pastoral heart, by telling them that he will always remind them 
of these basic things, especially since his life on this earth is about to end, as the Lord has made evident to him. He longs for them to be able to recall spiritual truths. The, one of the defining marks of a true shepherd of God. He is a true and loving shepherd, longing for his people to remember the basic life-giving truths of God's Word. He reminds them that he is proclaiming the truth of God. He and the other apostles did not, didn't make anything up. They didn't come to them with myths and fairy tales. He relates his account of the transfiguration of Jesus and reminds them that as great and as wonderful as that experience was for them, God's inspired and written word is more sure and more reliable. And that's how he ended chapter 1. In chapter 2, Peter moves into his warnings concerning false teachers. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers. He explicitly describes them in their immorality, their greed, their dishonesty, and their ultimate denial of the lordship of Jesus. He warns of how they will entice and lure the immature and the undiscerning. He compares them to demons and to the ungodly who were judged in the flood and to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. He highlights the ever-present grace of God in the protection of Noah and his family in the ark and the rescue of Lot and his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah. Bottom line, the Lord spares the righteous and punishes the unrighteous on the coming day of judgment. He talks about how the false teachers have followed the way of Balaam. And we unpacked that. We went back to the Old Testament account and saw what that was talking about, which highlighted their love of money, their greed, and their sexual immorality. We even did a little side trip on the talking donkey and what that taught us. He closes the chapter with some pretty descriptive metaphors, saying that the false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm and slaves of corruption, dogs who return to their vomit and pigs who love to wallow in the mud. So Peter holds nothing back in his disdain for these ungodly people who lead the sheep astray. He says that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. In other words, hell awaits. It would have been better for them if they had never known in their heads, because it wasn't in their heart, it would have been better if they had never had an intellectual knowledge of the way of righteousness, for their punishment in eternity will be much worse. We move now to chapter 3, and Peter changes the subject from false teachers to the coming day of the Lord. 
pretty big subject, wouldn't you say? Uh, the, the ESV heading that, of course, the translators have added, nothing uh, inspired about it, but the heading in the ESV version says, the day of the Lord will come. This phrase should conjure up several notions for us if we've been a Christian for any length of time or been around church and grown up in the church. Notions like the end of the present evil age, our blessed hope, the return of Jesus, the final judgment, the consummation of human history, and the climax of redemptive history, the ultimate event of the ages, the event to which every other event looks, the resurrection of the body, and the ultimate glorification of the people of God. When we see him, we will be as he is. What a day. What a day. I'm so looking forward to walking through this chapter with you. Before getting into what he, Peter wants to say about the last day, Peter reminds them in verse 1 that he's reminding them. Isn't that He was reminding them that he's reminding them. Because he's already said that in chapter 1. Remember what he said in verses 13 to 15. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So in chapter 1, Peter is reminding them to live in a godly way. And he gave those seven godly characteristics that they're to work out, that they're to add to their faith. Here, in chapter 3, he is reminding them that Jesus is coming back. And the end of the present age is coming. Toward the end of the chapter, Peter makes the connection and brings these two reminders together. I'll just mention it here because we will get to these verses and dig deeper later. But in 11 to 14 of chapter 3, we read this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, here's the connection, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see the connection? The connection between his reminder in the first chapter to live holy lives and the reminder in chapter 3 that Jesus is coming. The fact of the return of Jesus motivates us to live holy lives. As John MacArthur wrote in his commentary, when Christians live in anticipation of Christ's 
promised return, they demonstrate spiritual zeal and enthusiasm, recognizing that they will soon give an account to their master. So, in other words, knowing that Jesus is coming back motivates us, or it should. It should motivate the true believer, knowing that he is going to reward us for deeds done to glorify his Father should spur us on. Have you ever thought about this? This is one of the reasons we gather. Have you ever seen this in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, it's a capital D in the the ESV, the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return. So do you see what that text is saying? While we gather on Sunday morning primarily, primarily, underline that word, primarily to worship our great and awesome God who has saved us by the blood of Jesus, a secondary reason we gather is to encourage one another to love and good works. Why? Because the day of our Lord's return is drawing near. So what I want you to see is the connection between the promised return of the Lord and our inner motivation of the Spirit to live lives that honor God. This, think about it. Today might be our last Sunday morning worship service. And even if it's not, I pray God will move us in our spirit to worship like it is. Jesus may come back this week. It may be the last time for all the true believers to gather. Now, some of you may gather, but I hope not. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. But even on an individual basis, none of us know what tomorrow holds. This might be your last worship service. Are you worshiping like it is? Because it might be. You might go home this week to be with the Lord. Jesus might come back. May every Sunday, may we worship with the thinking of the real possibility that it may be our last time. 
should, isn't that the way we should live every day? This may be my last day. Jesus may take me home through death. He may come back. So, beloved, this is the day the Lord has made. And it's the only one you got. It's the only day you got. Rejoice. Be glad. Be thankful. Live for the glory of God. And dear church family, while we're together, let's worship him with everything that we are. Let's worship him in spirit and truth. It might be our last time together. As Paul wrote in Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Beloved, we're closer to seeing Jesus than we've ever been before. We are closer to hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant, than we have ever been. So press on, beloved. Press on. He's coming back. And it might be tomorrow. It might be tonight. It might be a hundred years from now. It might be a thousand years from now. It shouldn't change our attitude. As we're going to see in chapter 3. It, it, it shouldn't be... Uh, uh, Altered, our, our attitude shouldn't be altered by mockers who come and say, Oh, where is that? Jesus been, everything's been going like it's always been. What's this stuff about Jesus coming back? You're, you're so crazy. You're so silly. No, no, no. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So press on. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let your redeemed life shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And look, here's, here's one of the beautiful mysteries of this. Not only is Christ return a motivating hope, when we think it, it, it could be very soon, we're, tr- we're leaving that with God. Um, when we realize that, as the Bible teaches, we're going to receive rewards for things done in the body that honored Jesus and honored God. But John also tells us that it's a purifying hope. It's a purifying hope. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay? We hadn't arrived. We're growing. We're, we're getting there. We're not there. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We highlighted that and emphasized that in our last Membership Matters class today. If they decide to join us, they're joining a bunch of messed up sinners that have not arrived and that we're all growing and that we're going to help each other and we're going to hold each other accountable and we're going to encourage one another to love and good deeds just like we read in Hebrews 10. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, second coming, day of the Lord, 
when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay, John's talking future there. That day's coming. But then he adds this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, beloved, ponder that this week. That is an amazing verse. And what it's telling us is that when we fix our mind on things above, when we set our gaze on Jesus, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we hope in him, we are purified as he is pure. So in some way, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of sanctification, a longing for and looking for and hoping in Jesus is part of that sanctification process. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Isn't that good? Isn't that amazing? Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love God's Word? Okay, okay. so with all that as an introduction to chapter 3, today we want to consider two things. We're looking at two things today. Peter gives some strong reminders to the Beloved. Again, his pastoral heart comes out, and he calls them beloved, beloved, okay? Some strong reminders to the beloved, but then also we want to look at some sober warnings to the ungodly, okay? Strong reminders to the family of God, strong reminders to Christians, strong reminders to brothers and sisters, strong reminders to covenant church members, strong reminders to the beloved, and sober warnings to the ungodly. Okay, so let's look at the reminders first. In verse 2, he tells them to remember what God has said. Verse 2, that you should remember. He's already said in verse 1 that he's reminding them. And then he tells them the first thing they should remember. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your Apostles. So, in other words, remember what God has said. Remember what God has said from two sources the predictions of the prophets. Notice he calls them holy prophets. He might have done that as a contrast to what he's just talked about in chapter 2. Remember, the false prophets. These are in contrast to the false prophets. So, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And, of course, that would be referring to the Old Testament. Okay? And then, he says, remember the commandments of Jesus through the apostles. So, what would that phrase be referring to? Well, what was in the process of being written at the time, the Gospels and the epistles and letters of the New Testament. In other words, just remember what God has said. Remember the Old Testament prophets? Remember what Jesus spoke through the apostles, through the writers of the New Testament. So let's look at these one at a time. And just that's what I want to do now is just take a few minutes just to let the Word of God wash over us, okay? He, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Now, if you recall, it's been a while, but when we studied 1 Peter, 
Peter first introduced this topic in his first letter. In 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, remember this? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Okay, I'm thinking... The chapter that obviously should come to our mind, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, okay? The Spirit of Christ was working through those Old Testament prophets to predict the sufferings of Christ and, Peter adds, the subsequent glories. The subsequent glories, the glories that were to come after Christ's sufferings, like his resurrection, like his ascension, and like the topic we're looking at here in chapter 3 of Second Peter, his return, his imminent return. So, even before, another wonderful reason to love the Bible, even before Christ's first coming in the incarnation through the virgin birth, the prophets spoke of or alluded to his second coming. Um, Pete's already read one of them. A lot of the scholars believe that. Zechariah 14 is referring to the day of the Lord, the second coming. It's going to be a big mess. You you heard what Pete read? The world's going to be a mess and. God's going to set down. Jesus is going to set down the Mount of Olives. And man, he's going to make everything right. That day of the Lord is coming. And, and this was one of the reasons the, the, the teachers and the leaders of Israel in Jesus' time were confused. Because their focus was on the predictions of the coming king. And they completely ignored, either through intentional blindness or whatever, they ignored the suffering servant predictions, most notably Isaiah 52 and 53. Their focus was on the examples I want to read right now, okay? So back to the main point I was trying to make there. Even before Christ's first coming as the suffering servant who died on a cross, the prophets alluded to, it was, it was veiled, okay? We don't get all the details, but there's a definite allusion to his second coming as conquering king. And as judge. Let's just read some examples. And like I said, I just want to read these. I, I, I've got a few here. I, I don't want to make much comment on them. I just, just let the Word of God just wash over you, okay? As we read these predictions. This is what Peter's told us to do, right? Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Okay, the first one I want to read is in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, let, let's do exactly what Peter Encouraged us to do, remember the predictions of 
the holy prophets. Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. In chapter 3 of Second Peter, Peter's going to talk about fire, right? We're going to get there, okay? Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We're fixing to remember that sacrifice at this table. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Let's bounce over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. Isaiah 13, beginning at verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. There it is, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That's just apocalyptic language for saying massive things are going on in the universe. And the return of Jesus is a massive thing. The coming day of the Lord is a massive event. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, the scoffers that Peter's going to talk about later in chapter 3, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 24, beginning at verse 19. Just hear the word of God. We're remembering the predictions of the prophets, just like Peter encouraged us to do. Isaiah 24, verse 19. The earth is utterly broken. Would you say the world system today is utterly broken? <laughs> I mean, look at what's going on around us. It's utterly broken. <laughs> Supposedly very, very intelligent, smart people can't define what a woman is. It's broken. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. 
They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. One more. And we could have done a lot of them. But one more from the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, For you believers, for you born-again members of Christ's church, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, that day of action is coming. Peter's talking about it in this second letter. And he's encouraging his readers to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And that's what we've just done. But he doesn't stop there. He tells them to also remember the commandments of Jesus through the apostles. And this phrase, of course, is referring to to the gospel writings and the epistles and the Pauline writings and the letters we're studying in P- from Peter, the ap- all the apostolic writings of the New Testament. In the study note of the MacArthur Study Bible, we read this fun fact to know and tell. The apostles of Christ filled the 260 chapters of the New Testament with about 300 references to the second coming. In other words, that's an average of over one mention of the return of Christ per chapter. 300 mentions in 260 chapters in the New Testament. Let's do what we did with the Old Testament and just get some examples. Let the Word of God just wash over you, encourage your heart, fill you with hope. Know that this day is coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged. Chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, no announcements. No, get your act together. It's a week away. No, a thief in the night. When a thief breaks into your home, he doesn't write you a, a letter telling you he's coming, right? That's the analogy here. That's what, is being, that's what Paul is saying. Be ready. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind on things upon, above. The day of the Lord is coming, and it's imminent. It might be tomorrow. It might be a thousand years. But it's coming. And there will be no previous announcement. Okay? How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Next book, starting at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, that would be like the scoffers that Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 3. Their comeuppance is coming, okay? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. You don't have to worry about it, okay? Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There's the fire that Peter's going to talk about. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Verse, I love verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. And to be marveled at. Listen. We, we've, we've thought all our Christian life that we have been marveling at Jesus from the Scriptures when we read about Him. But that's nothing compared to what's coming for us. Our eyes will actually see Him. We won't just be reading about Him. We will see him when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 
Let's get some words directly from Jesus. How about John chapter 14? You're familiar with this. Maybe one of your favorites, one of my favorites, John 14, verse 1. Let y'all not your, this is Jesus speaking, and uh, it still fits the reminder because the Apostle John wrote it down. So, words of Jesus through the apostles, okay? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. Has Jesus ever lied? Will he ever lie? Is he a lie? No, he's the truth. He's the truth. He's truth embodied. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let it wash over you, beloved. Let it just fill your heart with hope, with joy, with the promise of a better life coming. It's coming. A new world is coming. A new earth, a new heavens. It's coming. How do we know? Jesus said so. I will come again that where I am you may be also. Matthew 16, 27 Let's stick with Jesus for a little bit here. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come. He's going to come. This is Jesus talking. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He's done. And then Acts chapter 1, you know the account of the ascension? Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus is resurrected. He's with his followers. He's with his apostles right before he returns to the Father. And so they asked him, will you, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, that's bigger than a talking donkey, isn't it? Okay? Just lifted up. Taken up into a cloud right before him. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? <laughs> I mean, okay, what would you have done? <laughs> I think that would have been me, okay? Uh, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come. Not might come. Not he's thinking about coming. Uh, not, uh, it depends on how you act, if he comes or not. No, he, he will come. In the same way. In the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Same way, just, just reversing the direction. Same way. He, he will come in the same way. 
See, it's, but it all boils down, do you believe the Bible or not? That's the bottom line, isn't it? That, that's usually the way it works. Do you believe not just in God? There are a lot of people that say they believe in God, but they don't believe God. Do you believe God? That's the big dividing line. And God has said that his son will come in the same way that he went up. He will come from the clouds. He will come. And then the last book of the Bible, couldn't leave that one out. Revelation chapter 1, John, as he's writing this letter, he gets this vision of Jesus. And before that, he he writes this in verse 4, Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. So. Beloved, we've done what Peter has encouraged us to do. We've remembered just some brief examples. Could have been many more. Remember, 300 mentions in the New Testament alone. We've remembered what God has said, both from the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. We've remembered what God has said about His Son's second coming. The second reminder... Uh, Peter gives them is to know that scoffers will come. Know that scoffers will come in verses 3 and 4. He says, knowing this first of all. First of all. Now he's not talking about sequence. He's not talking about, he's not referring to first in a sequence, but first in priority. You know, put this at the head of your thoughts. Write this down. Know this. An alternate translation is above all, know this, know this. So what's Peter telling us? He's helping us to be prepared. He's saying to us, to his readers then and to us now, that it's vital that you know and understand and be ready for this. You're going to be ridiculed for what you believe. The scoffers will come and they will be brutal. Don't be surprised and don't be intimidated. Don't back down. Hold your ground Stand on the solid rock of Jesus. Contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We all know this. Many of us, maybe most of us, have experienced it. The scoffers constantly ridicule Christianity and Christians, saying basically, how in the world can you believe the stuff in the Bible? Peter is telling us that we just need to know that these people will always be around until Christ returns. Just count on it. 
Deal with it. Be ready to contend for the faith joyfully. Be the happy warrior. The scoffers, let's just consider who they are. They're basically the folks who don't want to give up their perceived autonomy. They don't want to surrender their rule over their own life. They don't need another Lord. They already have one themselves. At the end of verse 3, Peter tells us that the scoffing results from following their own sinful desires. These folks despise the thought of having to give an account of their sinful lifestyle. So they reject the teaching of the coming judgment of God when Jesus returns. They hate the thought of divine retribution. So they mock those who believe it. As Michael Green wrote, man-centered pleasure-seeking always mocks at the idea of ultimate standards and a final division between saved and lost, sheep and goats. For men who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous in their minds. For men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that we are accountable and dependent is a bitter pill to swallow. So they lash out by mocking people like us. Now, most of this scoffing, hang with me, okay? Most of this scoffing can be grouped into or connected to primarily three categories, okay? Got some big words coming for you, so be ready. First, uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. The theory, it's scientific theory, and for detail on this, after the service is over, see Brother Tom Carpenter, okay? All right. So the, the theory that, this is the theory that changes in the earth and its crust and du- during geological history have resulted from the action of continuous and uniform processes. In other words, everyone, everything just goes fairly smoothly along, always the same way, all the time, and that that even spills over into human history, that history is an unbroken continuity of natural, notice the emphasis on natural, naturalism, on natural cause and effect, and will continue unbroken into the future. It's the opposite of what we call catastrophism which acknowledges the existence of sudden, violent, and unusual events in the past and the real possibility of them in the future, like the flood, okay? Then there's the second category that these scoffers are usually connected to, and it's materialism, that matter is all that matters because matter is all that there is. There's no spiritual beings, no spiritual activity, no spiritual realm. Matter is all that there is. And then third, anti-supernaturalism. In other words, to believe in miracles is stupid. No miracles. There's no supernatural being, especially God. 
Miracles are impossible. Belief in miracles are stupid. And believers in miracles are stupid and not even worthy to engage in conversation. So obviously, I know that was quick, but obviously all three of these are strongly attached to atheism. Atheism. No God. Okay, no God. Charles Swindler writes, today scoffers like this, atheists, materialists, anti-supernaturalists, uniformitarians, have loud voices. They write popular and academic books. They travel the talk show circuits and influence the minds of the masses. The details may be new, and certainly the favorable, favorable media coverage has increased, but the basic tone and intention mirrors the scoffers of Peter's day. These folks just don't believe that a day of reckoning is coming. They reject that. And boy, are they going to be surprised. Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Their only hope, the only hope for these people is described at the end of the same psalm. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, this is a message for the elite. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay? So two reminders to the beloved. Remember what God has said. And know that scoffers will come. You will be mocked for remembering and believing what God has said. Real quick, I'm going to speed through these. The warnings to the ungodly beginning of verse 5 the scoffers it says they deliberately overlook an important fact an alternate translation translation is they purposely ignore they purposely ignore the fact that some pretty big supernatural ununiform events have happened in the past first creation out of nothing <laughs> That's pretty big, right? That's pretty ununiform. I mean, if uniformitarianism was true, there'd still be nothing. But a supernatural God acting in a supernatural way to bring about creation. And verse 5 is a brief summary statement of creation. God created the heavens by separating water from water, and then he formed the earth by separating the water from the land. Genesis 1, 6 to 10 describes it. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth, 
and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. Pretty big event in past history. Then secondly, Peter reminds us that there was a global flood that destroyed almost everything. Verse 6 talks about this. So in light of these two facts, Peter issues two warnings to the scoffers. Number one, don't forget God's judgment in the past. God's done it before. He created everything. He owns it all. He makes the rules for all of life. And when those rules are broken, God has the absolute right to bring down judgment. And he did that in the past with the flood. Don't forget that. The flood proves that things don't always just continue in a uniform pattern. Secondly, he says, not only don't forget about what God has done in the past, he says, don't discount God's plans for the future. Verse 7, Peter's second warning to the scoffers involves what's coming. He judged the ungodly in the days of Noah with water. He will judge the ungodly in the future by fire. Count on it. Count on it. Okay? So, reminders to the beloved. Remember what God has said. Remember what he said. Believe what he said. And know you're going to be mocked for it. Warnings to the ungodly. Look at what God's done in the past. Don't discount what he's going to do in the future. I'll close with these words from Simon Kistemacher. Okay. Not on your sheet, Saturday edition. Didn't make the sermon sheet, so don't be looking for it. Okay. God determines the beginning of this universe and the end. He speaks as the creator in the beginning with the result that the heavens and the earth are formed. He speaks as the judge on the last day with the consequence that heaven and earth will be destroyed by fire. God saved believing Noah and his family while the whole world perished. He also will save believers when the conflagration of the world takes place. So, beloved, rejoice in God's promise. Six verses later in verse 13, but according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, we are waiting for that. We are joyfully, hopefully, gladly, trustingly waiting for that. We believe you. We believe what you've said. We believe your word. We believe what you've done in the past. We believe and hope in what you're going to do in the future. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and we ask for strength to run this race for as long as you have us run it, knowing that your Son is coming back to make everything right. We bless your name, and we thank you for this time at your table of grace. A reminder to us of what Jesus did to remove the curse that we deserved. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.